If unable to care for yourself, who would you choose as your guardian angel? From Well Played, this is Superhumans. 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 Who is a superhuman? Superhumans is what we become when we allow our story to serve as medicine for others. I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. In this episode, you'll hear from Alexandra Train, who after facing a traumatic health scare, realizes that angels exist on Earth in the form of caregivers, and that we should celebrate them with the dignity and respect that they deserve. I actually think we have to start sharing more with each other, more openly, how hard life can be in general, but certainly life right now. As you listen, think about how you see yourself in Alexandra's story. I'll see you on the other side of the story. I feel like I've had a life where I get saved a lot and I want to be worthy of having been saved a lot. And I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to save other people because I'm lucky that I, that I, that I do because I've had a lot of situations where things could have gotten really badly and they didn't. Um, because I'm, because I am super lucky and there are a lot of people who aren't that lucky. And I think that's part of what, what I think about a lot is like, damn, um, I got to pay it forward. I'm so silly to cry. That's so funny, but weird. I'm super grateful. I'm not sad at all. Here's a weird story. Um, I, I'm a DES daughter. So there's always a question if a DES daughter can get pregnant. And I always thought I wasn't going to be able to. After Antonio and I got hitched, we started, we, we pulled the goalie, so to speak. And although I technically didn't believe I could get pregnant, I kept secretly believing I could get pregnant. And we were going to see Antonio's sister, who was very, very seriously ill um, from brain cancer. This was after she had been sick probably for three months. And she was home. And she was in pretty good shape at this moment. We were going to see her, and I asked Antonio to pull over into a CVS. I said I just needed to grab something. I didn't say what. What I grabbed was a pregnancy test. And then I ran to the back of the CES and I took the pregnancy test and waited and then it said negative. And so I get back in the car and I do that thing that 
I think women do sometimes, which is well, humans do. I looked out the window and I didn't say what was wrong and I just started like silently crying. And it took for him to be like, what's wrong? Wait, are you crying? What are you crying about? And then I like distracted with like, oh, I'm just sad, I'm t- tired. He's like, no, what is actually going on? Like what, what just happened there? And I admitted that I secretly had come to believe that I wasn't gonna be able to get pregnant, but then I thought maybe I was pregnant, but then I just took this pregnancy test and I actually am not pregnant. I'm not never gonna get pregnant. And because we're going through this stress with Za, all in the course of us driving to see Za's house, I'm like, I wanna say that we're not gonna have babies. I wanna say, let's take it off the table. I can't handle the stress of wanting to get pregnant right now. It's not appropriate. So I need you to agree with me that we're just giving up on it. We're not gonna be able to have kids. And you can imagine poor Antonio, like, like, wow, that was 85,000 things you just said all at once. But, and we're driving to my sister who is very, very seriously ill. And he said, I don't even know what to say. So, okay, I agree. So I stopped crying from like looking to make sure it doesn't look like I'm crying because that would be so stupid and selfish to like go visit my beautiful sister-in-law um, crying about my own issues. And she opens the door and looks at me and says, um, why are you, cry- why were you crying? And so immediately I'm like, ah! so she says, come in here, come sit with me on the couch. So we sit on the couch next to each other. Um, so we're sitting there and she turns to me, she says, what is going on with you? And I was like, oh, Zah. I told her everything like, bah! and she goes, oh, honey, you don't need to worry about that. You're not going to get pregnant right now. You're not going to get pregnant until your April, May cycle. And it was like this really strange out of body moment because she knew that my cycle was half month, half month. I don't know how she knew that. There's no way she could have known that. And she was so calm in how she said this. So I was like, okay, I'll stop worrying about it. So time goes on, time goes on. Um, Za actually, the the, uh, cancer went to her back eventually. And it was incredibly painful. You take comfort in each other in a lot of different ways. And on one of the hardest days we had ever had, because Zah was in so much pain, Antonio and I almost in like this desperate, it was not romantic. It was like this, we were intimate, sort of like a craving connection, like a craving life because we were so afraid of what was going on. The very next morning, Antonio goes downstairs to where Zah was staying and he walks down and before she says anything else, he says anything to her, she says to him, is Alex pregnant? And he said, no, why? And he said, she said, because I keep having this vision of her coming around a corner and she's got a massive belly. And she's like, no, and she's not going to get pregnant. We're not working on that. Well, it turned out that was the night that I got pregnant. So Za always knew that I was going to have a girl. And she was like, it's going to be a girl. It's going to be a girl. Um, When we finally told her I was pregnant, she was like, yes, and it's a girl. And I remember um, after Za died being so mad. 
when we got home from the hospital that first night, um, I went up into my room and was asleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up. And this has never happened to me before and never happened again. I woke up and I saw in the corner of the room these like undulating like flowers is really the only way that I could describe it. And I knew like that it was that. Like I knew and what what she what she was saying so clearly. Like like that same sort of overwhelming all over body. She was saying to me, um, you're gonna be okay. Alessia's gonna be okay. And your baby is gonna be okay. Like you're okay. This is okay. I am here. I will always be here. I'm I'm in you. So it was so funny because when Leo was born, I would lie awake at night like, okay, Sa, come back. Tell me Leo's gonna be okay too. She never came back. That's the only time I've seen her that way. So, um, the first time Lily, my daughter, clanked at my computer, um, she was probably like six months old, and she was sitting at my office chair with me, and she was banging on my computer keyboard randomly, and like, type, 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 type. And at the end, the last thing she typed was Z-A-Z-A-Z-A. And I was like, oh my God, za-za-za-za-za. And so I turn away and she like somehow gets the cursor. I move the cursor back to the beginning because I didn't want her to hurt the za-za-za. So I move back to the top of the page. And somehow she gets the cursor back to the beginning, like the end of the paragraph, right before the za-za-za-za-za. And she writes, I-O-I-O-I-O. And I completely freak out. And I run up to Antonio, who's in the kitchen, and say, oh, my God. Because we always, someone had said to Antonio, like, when Zah died, her spirit went into Alex's belly. Um, and so I ran upstairs and I said to Antonio, oh, my God. Like, Lily just wrote, I-O-I-O-I-O, Zah, Zah, Zah. Like, I think what she's saying is, I owe Zah, right, for my life. And Antonio was like, gets white as a ghost and said, no. In Italian, that means, I owe Zah. I am Zah. Um, and so we're, there's just been like all these things. Oh, and that there's other examples where I feel like Za, you know, gave me my pregnancy, was, was my pregnancy, and is now so foundationally part of who we are. And I know Za is watching. And when she died, I definitely carried with me this enormous intensity for a long time after. And I still did of, wow, like I could be dead. Like I have had five extra years. What am I doing in those years? I'm so grateful for those years. But I still would be a little flippant sometimes and a little less intentional. Um, we went away on holiday and we were with our kids who were young at the time and went away with a very a family that we just adore. And we were in Costa Rica and every day we would surf. 
And I would try and fit in work, like sneak away to do some work, but then go do surfing, try to balance, like being very present. And I started to have a sore throat that got worse and worse and worse. And the last morning we went out surfing and this woman and I, her name is Marissa. She and I, I love her. She and I went out surfing. We had so much fun, but I had a terrible sore throat, but I didn't tell anybody. And we go back and we get dressed and head into the airport. And at the airport, I say to Antonio, I have a really, really, really bad sore throat. Because I hadn't wanted to admit it because I didn't want to be a downer. I didn't want to say I didn't feel good because my job as somebody who's always working, if you're on holiday, you better freaking be on holiday. You better not be sick. You better bring your best self. So I admitted to him because my throat was hurting so badly. I was like, I've got to go to the pharmacy. There was a pharmacy down there in the airport. I need to get some painkiller. My throat is killing. And he said, um, we, you know, it's probably just related to the air conditioner of the room. I was like, either way, it's killing. I need to get, and I started to cry. I was like, I don't understand that you don't understand. This hurts so badly. I need something for it. Next morning, we fly home. Next morning, wake up. And um, Eliza, my company, was in the midst of going through a process to get sold. And I needed to be at a meeting with a potential, with a private equity firm that we were maybe going to do this deal with. And I woke up. I never, ever miss work. And I felt so, so, so sick, like this sore throat that was all-encompassing. And so I called Sarah, who's now my co-founder, and started crying on the phone with her. So she was like, I was like, I don't think I can get to the meeting. I just really don't feel well. Um, And I started to cry. And she said, okay, she was in the meeting with the potential investors. And she said, stay where you are. I'm coming to get you. Uh, I'm coming to find you and make sure you're okay. And she came, sat on the side of my bed with me and said, "Um, we're going to take you to the doctor. Like, I know you're just not, this is very weird. You don't act this way. And we went to... Mass Ioneer in Boston and sat in the waiting room and they um, pulled me into the side room and said, um, you know, we're testing you for a rapid strep. You you do not have a fever, but your blood pressure is through the roof. So we can tell something is wrong with you. And by this point, Sarah had gone and Antonio, my man, had come to join me. And again, very weird, like not typical behavior by me to say I needed to go to the doctor or that I was hurting. So he was really on high alert. And she said, the doctor said to me, I'll never forget, she said, she was looking at me, and this is the same doctor who was with me through the rest of the night, in this very pragmatic way. Um, I was like, she's like, we have to give you a CAT scan because we can't figure out, the rapid strep test came back negative and clearly you're in pain, something's wrong. We need to figure out what it is. And I said, well, I can't get a CAT scan because there's a history of cancer in my family and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to have that risk. I don't need, I don't need to have any, um, you know, CAT scan exposure to radiation. And she said, okay, well, you can not have the CAT scan and not have that exposure. And this can have been a really serious throat infection that goes to your brain and then you could die. I was like, hmm. All right. When you just got it like that way, I'll get the CAT scan. So I went in, get the CAT scan, getting into the, um, you know, not anxious about it. I just think it's something, some weird thing get the CAT scan. And the guys who put me into the CAT scan um, were fine. Get out of the CAT scan. I go back and I'm sitting in a dark mass ioneer as a waiting room that was overrun. So there was a, um, like a cot that I was on and my honey came and sat and sat next to me on the cot. And I was really hurting too much to sort of say anything. It was like that dagger swallow. And he, we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And we saw the woman 
um, you know, she would get on the the the, the resident. I'm guessing who who'd been t- done my intake, like talking to a lot of different doctors and acting kind of weird. And she didn't come back up to me for like 40 minutes. And then when she did, she said, she started asking me all these really strange questions like, do you have any other scans that we can compare to this scan that we just took? I was like, no. And then she asked the same question like four more times. Is there any other scan, any other pictures, any other, any other, have you ever had any MRIs? And finally I was like, why are you asking me this? And she said, because we can see half a mass in your head. And I just remember that moment being like, wow, half a mass in my head. Um, And she, by the way, was gray. And all that sort of like beautiful, positive, young resident energy that she'd had when she was describing to you I was going to have to have a CT scan had completely gone away. She was gray. She looked like she was going to throw up. And it suddenly like hit me like I have a mass in my head. And I'm standing next to her. I'm sitting next to her. All I can think of is like, oh my God, what is Antonio thinking? Because his sister had died of brain cancer. And now my only experience with brain tumors is, you know, that I'm going to die. And so... I had to, we had to wait like 15 or 20. She said, we need to get you an MRI. You need to get an MRI so we can better understand what this thing is. We can only see half of it. And we were sitting there feeling numb. I don't really remember talking much to Antonio. I don't think he said much to me. We both just sort of sat there. I don't even really remember what I was thinking. But I remember then when they took me, I remember very, very clearly, they took me on that same cot back to the room now I was going to the MRI room, but it was the same techs who had taken me in for the CAT scan. And this time they were so kind to me. They were so kind to me. Like they put earphones on my head and they asked me what music I wanted to listen to. And they put a blanket on me. And then the guy, one of the guys sat while I was wheeled into the MRI machine. He sat the entire time while I was getting the MRI with his hand on my on my ankle just so that I would know he was there and I remember thinking to myself huh that's right because that's what they do when you're 39 and you've just been diagnosed with a brain tumor um and you're so young like they're anxious for me so they're being so nice and I went into the MRI machine and I that was the first time it ever in order to stay calm, I decided that the MRI machine was the inside of the earth and that the earth was holding me and that all the clanking noises that I was hearing was the earth creaking as it was moving, but that it was holding me close. And I let my brain go to, okay, well, Zazie died seven months after she was diagnosed, so I've got seven months. And how do I feel about that? Because I'd always wondered when my babies were born and my my they were really at that adorable age. My daughter was like three and my son was like one. I would call my mom and say, mom, should I quit my job? Like, they're so cute right now. Am I going to regret that I work so hard? Like, is this bad? Am I making bad choices? And she would always say to me, um, you don't need to feel badly. You know, they every every stage is better. Every age gets better. You should feel great. 
you're just be intentional with what you're doing. But if you love work, keep working and you're, you're, you're doing a good job as a mama. But I was always like, oh, maybe she's wrong about that. And if I got hit by a truck, like would my last thoughts be shit, I shouldn't have worked. Um, and so then you have this moment where I'm lying in that machine and I asked myself, do you have any regrets? Do I have any regrets? And it was the most comforting, peaceful thing lying there in the center of the earth this resounding, like reverberating through my bones answer, fuck no, I don't have any regrets. I don't regret at all. I feel like I have been a good mama and I love my job and I love what I do and I love my man. And if this is it, my only regret is that I have lived my life so quickly so quickly that I could just as easily, instead of being 39, I could just as easily right now be 82. I'm not doing this slowly enough. I need to slow down. I need to pay attention to the moments. I have to remember. I have to see the stitches on the baseball more. If you're a hitter for baseball, I'm not really good at sports analogies, but if you're a hitter for baseball, they say that the hitter, if this is their thing, if this is what they know, if this is their superpower then they can see the stitching on the ball as it comes toward them. And they could see the stitches because everything slowed down so much for them. And my dad used to always ask me to pay attention. I have to feel the movement of the people in the room more. I need to remember the moments more. I could tell the second I came out of the machine, they always tell you, the techs always tell you, no, we don't know, we can't tell anything, but they could definitely, I could tell by the way that their energy had changed that I probably wasn't gonna die right away. And because they were kind of nice to me and they weren't, they didn't, they weren't as precious with me as they had been when they put me in. And I started to have this little moment of like, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not dying right now. And then that same resident came over and started to talk to me about that I didn't have strep throat. And I was like, why are you talking about strep throat? Like, what is wrong with you? What is in my freaking head? And she said, you have a, um, what they call a meningioma, um, which is almost always benign. And we think yours is benign. And so we're going to send you home. She said, I've been talking to doctor, um, the doctor that she'd been talking to us. We'd been watching her on the phone and off the phone um, was actually the doctor who had taken care of my sister-in-law, who I knew very well from Mass General. Um, wonderful doctor. Um, and she said, uh, you just got to go to see a doctor on Monday. So I was talking to him and you're okay. It's Friday. Go home. Go in on Monday. And I was checking out and the woman who was checking me out said, um, do you, she said, I can't, how are you okay? You just got diagnosed with a brain tumor. Like, why are you so happy? And I said, I'm so happy because I'm going home. And a lot of times people don't get to go home. The months leading up to my surgery, I was a wreck, an absolute wreck. I was sure that I was going to die during the surgery. So um, went and had the surgery. And my honey will describe that when he first saw me, it was like a nine and a half hour surgery. My tumor was right in the middle of my head. Um, and as they say, you know, to get to the bad part of your head, we got to go through the good part. And so they really didn't know how I would be after um, I looked like I was dead. I was all shriveled because I was so depleted. I have such memories of 
like not being able to answer questions and knowing that I wasn't answering correctly when they would ask what day it was or where was I. And you really don't know in that moment. Nobody knows. Your family doesn't know. I, and the, the worry is you're never going to be yourself again. Like I was like, I, I, oh my God. And a year after the surgery, I was getting um, a certain type of a test just to see how my brain was doing. And they had me, it's like a functional MRI equivalent. So they have, they, they have they, you clear your brain and they're testing for different way, places where your brain activates. And um, they said, clear your brain entirely and don't think about anything. And so my favorite two topics, you guys will judge me for this, please don't, are sex and death. Those are my favorite topics. And so I'm clearing my brain. When somebody says, don't think of anything, immediately I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to be able to tell if I think about something. So of course I think about something naughty. And like, that's so inappropriate. Now the wrong parts of your brain have lit up. I was like, okay, think about love. Just think about love. And so I lay there thinking about my man, who every MRI since that first one has always sat and he fills out the questionnaire you're not supposed to he comes into the room with me he sits and he puts his hand on my ankle and there he was and in the days leading up to this MRI I'm always so afraid of what the results are going to be that I am a raving lunatic terrible person and I had of course been a raving lunatic terrible person I was I'm cranky and mean I'm so afraid that they're going to like yep now we've found this and now you're going to die in seven months so the, as I'm clearing my brain and thinking about love, I'm like just love, just love on people, be grateful, just be grateful, be grateful for your man. For whatever reason, it hit me that I was like, wow, Antonio, you know, he missed, he's here sitting with me today. Like he's missing work for that. And I've been a real jerk getting after this moment these last couple of days. And, and I'm going to be a real jerk until we get these results back. And then, and, and I'm doing that to him. Like, he's my caregiver, and I have not ever said thank you to him. I have never acknowledged that he is a caregiver. And it was this incredibly humbling moment of, here this thing that I have studied so much, and I know how hard it can be, how maddening it can be, how exhausting it can be. I had I had, had nine and a half hour brain surgery already a year before that, and eight or whatever years before that had been diagnosed. And never once in that moment had I acknowledged the impact I was having those around me by having, by needing the care that they were then giving me. And it was like this transformative moment in, and I of course didn't do it then because I felt so guilty that I had not been acknowledging as caregiver that just got me into a worse mood. Um, And it took me like going home and saying it out loud to, I think I called Sarah uh, my co-founder was like, you're never going to believe it. Like, I'm a, I made Antonio a caregiver. And she's like, huh? And of course, I'm sure she got off the phone and cried because I'd made her, she'd been a caregiver for me. Like, literally, there's not a moment as I was recovering that I ever thought, wow, Alex, your mother's a caregiver. Your, your man is a caregiver. Your children are being caregivers. I literally didn't even cross my mind. Um, and it was where the whole next stage, a big stage of what we're working on now came out of, which is... I wish in retrospect that what I had said to Antonio right when I was diagnosed 
is, will you be my archangel? Will you be my caregiver? I'd made him a caregiver and there was no glory in it. There was no celebration in it. There was no, because there are beautiful parts in it. And when you're a caregiver and it's thrust upon you and there, there is no gratitude, like nobody acknowledges, like if you become a godparent, there's like this big process if you ask someone to marry you, like and everyone's celebrating, like, oh my God, you got engaged. That's your fiance. Or, you know, I'm the godmother now and there's pride and you can celebrate. And yes, you know that there's going to be good bits and, and bad bits. I want that same thing to be true for caregivers. Like, I wish I had said to Antonio, will you be my archangel? You know, will you care for me? Will you be with me through these hard bits? And then he could have said, hell yeah, I'm your archangel. And that's a different relationship that it's still going to be a horrible job. There's still going to be really hard days, but he will have felt chosen as opposed to this is a job that falls on him. And then if we can articulate what an archangel is, then someone could say to someone else, like, I'm an archangel. And when you ask someone to be your archangel, you can feel in it the honor that you're giving them. You know it's going to be hard, but at least you can let them know, I'm not defaulting to you because I forgot, because you just happened to be my kid or my neighbor. I am saying with enormous intention, will you be my archangel? Will you care for me? Caregivers are so complicated. Um, They're so complicated because... Caregivers are answering to that of God and the person for whom they're caring. I actually think we have to start sharing more with each other, more openly, how hard life can be in general, but certainly life right now. And I I love contrasts, right? I think, you know, you know, what makes you strong makes you weak. Like, I like Mexican food because they put the hot stuff next to the cold stuff. Like, there is something so important about living the highs and living the lows. There was a guy that I worked with who said to me, you know, Alex, you're never going to be as good as you think you are on your best day. And you're never going to be as bad as you are as you think you are on your worst. And I said that to my dad. And my dad said, oh, Dan said that because he's a nine. He's a mediator. I disagree entirely. He said, You are as good as you think you are on your best day. And you are as bad as you know you are in your worst. Your job is to, in those moments where things are good, be intentional about storing that away in your belly so that you can go back to it and eat off it a little bit in those moments that are going to be awful. It's not about moderating the highs and lows. It's about surviving them that way and living into them. And there's actually research that says there's only one thing that will make you healthier than writing down the five things for which you're grateful, and that is to write down the five things you did today for which somebody else will be grateful. And this is sort of like my way of booking at night before I go to bed or in the middle of the night when I can't sleep. Like, I'm going to do this tomorrow. (sighs) Okay, I know I can do that. I'm going to love on this human. I can do that. Like, that I know. I'm going to make their life better in this practical, tactical way that is not esoteric or up to someone else's like did I did it happen or did it not um and so for me I think a lot of that sense of um figuring out what's in your belly having enormous empathy for the uh, whoever you're talking to they have good in them if you reduce them to the core the light is in them as well speak to that light even when you want to punch them in the face full on be like you fucker like nope 
you got to speak to that light in them. And when I can't sleep at night, which happens all the time, this happened to me last night, for example, um, there's a Quaker phrase that I repeat over and over in my head in order to be able to sleep. It says, give over your own willing, give over your own running, give over your own need to know or to be anything and sink down to that seed, which God sows in your heart and let it be in you and grow in you and live in you and act in you. Hi, Dr. G here again. I'd like to tell you about my friend, Alexandra Drain. As both a caregiver and care receiver herself, Alex is on a mission to recognize caregivers as archangels, giving a voice to the often forgotten, overlooked, and even ignored. Her love for caregivers is so strong, she started an organization called Archangels. It's a national movement and a platform that's reframing how caregivers are seen, honored, and supported using a combination of data and stories. She gives power to the powerless, a voice to the voiceless, and respect to the disrespected. We admire Alex for her dedication to celebrating the selfless acts of those that we often take for granted. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about Alexandra Drain and her amazing initiatives. And here to tell you more about what we're planning for you, our listeners, is our senior producer, Pamela Rothenberg. Hey, everyone. It's Pamela. We've been getting really, really incredibly beautiful feedback from you and a few requests as well. And the number one thing that we're hearing from you is that you want a place to connect more deeply with what you're hearing from our superhuman storytellers. Which is really great because Dr. G and I are in the process of creating a community for you. But here's the thing. We don't want to just create this community for you. We want to create it with you. So join us. You can get all the details by signing up for our newsletter at www.superhumans.health. We're so excited to shape this community with you. Again, that's superhumans.health. In our next episode, you'll hear from Arye Orr, who after growing up amidst a mosh pit of identities, sets out to find his true self. My dad was coming to pick me up. Michelle showed up and the little girl said something like, that's not your dad. I was like, yeah, that is. That's my dad. That's not your dad. That's a woman. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg. Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujun Yao. Community and social media is managed by Tara Bika. 
Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. And a special thanks to our creative collaborators, Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G, and you were loved.